0: Welcome to The Composer Studio. On The Composer Studio, we feature interviews with living composers. We talk about what's important to them, their process, and what's going on in the music of today. Join us and continue the conversation off air on our Facebook page. Just search The Composer Studio. You can also visit our website at www.composerstudio.nc.com. I'm Amy Scaria, and today we are so thrilled to welcome to our show one of the most accomplished composers living today, Jennifer Higdon. Jennifer is a Pulitzer Prize and three-time Grammy winner who entered the music scene relatively late in life. She began playing the flute at age 15 and was self-taught until she sought formal training by the age of 18. She began composing at the age of 21. In an industry that seems to favor child prodigies, Jennifer defied this paradigm and skyrocketed herself into becoming one of the most frequently performed composers living today. With several degrees in music composition, including a PhD from the University of Pennsylvania, she also holds honorary doctorates from the Hart School and Bowling Green State University. With over 200 performances of her works heard every year, we are so excited to have Jennifer on our show today. Jennifer, welcome to the Composer Studio. Thank you,
1: Amy. It's good to be here. Good to talk to you and talk to everyone else.
0: It's so good to talk to you, too. It's wonderful to hear your voice. I wanted to start out this episode with asking you, you've won three Grammy Awards. So, I'm so curious what what was it like to win a Grammy Award and what was it like to win your third this it, year?
1: you know, it's an amazing thing. The thing is, everyone knows what a Grammy is. So even now, when I think about it, i I kind of slap my forehead. <laughs> but I have to say that I really i it, it's it's actually mind blowing. And you would think after the first one, I'd be a little more like, oh, it's a Grammy, but I wasn't. I Every <laughs> single time I've kind of like jumped up and down a lot. Ironically, in this last round of Grammys in January of 2020, I wasn't actually even at the ceremony. I was doing a donor talk for Opera Philadelphia. And oh, wow. it was at the exact same time that the classical portion of the ceremony was going on. So when I came out of the donor talk, I was walking down Spruce street here in Philadelphia and my phone started going off. I mean, buzzing like crazy because they said you just won. And oh. so I was jumping like a maniac up and oh. down on the street. People were looking at me like, what's wrong with her? <laughs> <laughs> Is that woman okay? I know <laughs> they were all backing up. Let me tell you. Oh boy. But it's a thrill. I mean, it really is. I and mean, the thing that I get excited about is when you have something that's nominated and it's had a couple of different commissioners, like co-commissioners, it's kind of a cool thing for the co-commissioners. Like, so the, the piece that won a Grammy recently was a harp concerto. And I think we had six orchestras involved in that commission. Wow. Yeah. So for them, it's very exciting, you know, and some really weird ironic twist this year The harpist was playing the concerto during the classical section of the Grammys, except she was in Oklahoma. It was an orchestra in Oklahoma doing the piece, and it just happened to be a coincidence that it was scheduled at that time. So, Oh wow! I oh, know
0: she so couldn't be there either,
1: right? Neither one of us could. But uh, it was there was something visceral and exciting about the fact that the audience in Oklahoma was—they were all looking at their phones, trying to figure out what was uh. happening with the award. So <laughs> it's kind of neat that a lot of people can be involved in something like that because it's really a celebration—not just of the composer, but also the conductor and the soloist and the orchestra, the commissioning groups. It's a—it takes such a group effort that. I get excited thinking that we can celebrate the people who work together to make these kinds of projects actually possible.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I think that's one of the things that I love so much about the music industry is just this sense of community and, you know, what we create when we just even attend a performance. It's this sense of sort of togetherness. Um, which we also miss right now. I feel badly bringing that up because here we are in the midst of a pandemic and we don't have that. Um. It is an amazing,
1: you know, you can really feel the absence of live performances. I mean, most of the musicians I know, if they hear a live performer somewhere, they just start weeping. Some of them, they mm. go into an empty hall, they're having to check out a hall for some reason and they, they start crying. But it is, there's something there about the physics of listening to music in the presence of a live performer that is very different and so you're you're just kind of aware of that loss. It feels like somebody's erased part of your life.
0: It feels like that, doesn't it? It does. And, um, yeah, it's been. I don't know. I've been heartened in talking to so many of my friends in in music, and um, I think you were we were talking before we started this episode, and you were saying that composing really helps you, and. Um, I just was talking to a friend who said you know she had stopped she had stopped uh, practicing her cello and she's a beautiful cellist and she just started up again a couple of weeks ago and it's sort of like the spirit coming back you know yeah. to her, to her life and I think you know that was actually one of the questions I wanted to ask you was you know as we as the world grapples with this pandemic and we're all witnessing this deeply unfortunate hush within the music community as we social distance um, what are your thoughts on the importance of being creative during this time, not just for musicians, but for for us and, you know, for the general public? I think it's really, really
1: important. I mean, the fact of the matter is we have a lot of solitary hours where you're not around a lot of people. And there's just something about the ability to express something that is beyond words, and that's one of the things I love about music. It is expressing things beyond verbal descriptions. And I feel like I have to have that. I mean, it really kind of keeps my sanity intact. But, you know, we're all closed up in our homes. We we go out for essential things. Mm -hmm. And um, I think being able to express something from your inside, from your soul, so to speak, I think Mm -hmm. it really makes a difference. It keeps... It keeps me feeling like, okay, I have a voice, even though it's in enclosed in walls. Mm. So it's that ability to express something feels good. And I know for composing, because I'm organizing sounds, I have the illusion that I control some aspect of the
0: world. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I wonder if that's why. I wonder that about that with myself, why I was drawn to composing, that, you know, it, 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 it does. Works. It gives us...
1: It's yeah, we're controlling something, right? Or we think we're controlling something,
0: <laughs> we become controllers of the world around us, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like running your own universe in a certain way. You know, that's true. And you think about listening to the piece, it's like you're, well, especially with your music, your music is just sort of sweeps us away into this other world and what a gift. But I think that's true of the of the people who created as well. We, you know, I don't know about you, but I can sit down and compose and five hours pass and I look at my watch and go, you know, I've been sitting here for 10 minutes. And then you look at your watch and go, what, you know? Yeah, it's <laughs> absolutely
1: true. I think it's funny how it messes with your sense of time. And I don't know if it's because you may spend four or five hours working on something that actually in reality goes by in 10 seconds on a page. Yes, yes. So, but it does. And actually,
0: this leads well into your next piece because I, or your first piece we want to introduce to our audience. Although I'm sure, I'm saying introduce, you are so well known. So, um, but we have a lot of listeners who are kind of new to the, what composers are doing today. So I'm so excited to play this piece, The Shallows, from your uh, concerto 4-3, because you're talking about like writing down so many notes and this piece has a lot of notes. This section of this, this piece has a lot of notes. Um, and it's so exciting. And every time I listen to it, it makes me want to dance. It means I'm doing my job. <laughs> you, yes, yes. You know, and I just have to say, I remember being at the Kimmel center for the premiere of your concerto for orchestra. I had a similar, similar feeling listening to this piece during that premiere of the, concerto for orchestra. I mean, literally, I don't know if you were out in the audience, but literally all of us were on the edges of our seats. That's really
1: cool. You know, I was actually backstage. I have to admit, I I was so nervous that I was not able to sit out in the house on any of the performances. I literally... Just didn't think my heart could withstand it. I was so nervous. So that's oh fascinating to hear you say that.
0: <laughs> that is so. You know what? Hearing you say that is so validating. Because yeah,
1: you know, and you part of it is you're also you're pulling for the performers because you you yeah. want them to do well. One, it represents your music, but you also want it to be a good experience for the performers, which in translates to a good experience for the audience. So yeah. it's fairly unnerving. But I remember that particular premiere was really kind of like the birth of my career in many ways. It was an explosive event and it was it was too unnerving to sit out.
0: <laughs> A lot of pressure on you. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, then I can tell you that in the audience, literally, I mean, I, I, I don't think I looked around, but I could feel everyone and they must have also been on the edges of their seats because the last notes hit and we all just literally jumped out of our seats, yelling. That's and totally cool. I didn't know. That. <laughs> oh, it was and an applauding and, um. You know, to this day, I was talking to Steve Ledbetter, who I I think you also you know. Yeah. But he wrote the um. He wrote the the notes for the Boston Symphony for I think like thirty years or forty years. But um, Steve and I were talking about that, and we said, you know, the first piece, and to this day, I can't remember what that piece was. <laughs> it was like the the Brooke, uh violin concerto, maybe. Yeah. Okay. And I think so, and yeah, and it made, and that's a great piece, and yet your piece just made it. Forgive me, Brooke. It made it forgettable. <laughs> that's interesting, you know. And when I think back of how
1: young I was when I wrote that, I think it's nothing mm. short of a miracle. This really, in my head, this is what I'm like. Good grief, what happened and how did that come about? But it's it's actually kind of ironic because the success of that Concerto for Orchestra actually led to the Shallows Concerto for Three. That's oh, actually interesting. yeah. So okay. the four. The Philadelphia Orchestra, after they premiered the concerto for orchestra, they came back to me and they asked me, you know, we'd like to have another piece. They said they started with a percussion concerto. They said, we've got this young percussionist coming in. Want to write a percussion concerto? I thought, heck, why not? So I did. And that actually is the piece that won the first Grammy. And the percussion concerto was so successful, they came back again. And they said, we've got this bluegrass group, Time for Three. They came in and played for the conductor, Christoph Eschenbach, and he wants to know if you would be willing to write a concerto for them. Because I'd grown up in the South, in East Tennessee, I think Eschenbach felt like I might be able to kind of capture the bluegrass influence, but also the personalities of these three players, which is an unusual combo of solos. It's two violins and a bass. It's, mm, not, yeah. it's not. it's yeah, not a typical it is bluegrass. Yeah, right. Exactly. So I I took it as a personal challenge. It was. I thought it was really scary. But that commission came about because of the concerto for orchestra's success with the Philadelphia Orchestra. Mm. So there's actually kind of an interesting. It's an interesting connection.
0: That I did. I didn't know about that. That's amazing. Well, let's go ahead and listen to the shallows, and then we'll come back and talk a little more about this piece. Sounds good. This. Yep. Yeah, this is Jennifer Higdon's The Shallows from her Concerto 4 Three. was The Shallows from Jennifer Higdon's Concerto 4-3, commissioned by the Philadelphia Orchestra, the Pittsburgh Symphony, and the Wheeling Symphony. This performance that we just heard is by Time for 3, a trio of two violins and double bass, the Fort Worth Symphony with Miguel Harth Bedoya conducting. This piece can be purchased on the Fort Worth Symphony CD, take six. Jennifer, I was literally um, dancing in my chair listening to this.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Good
0: <laughs> and um and we were we were chatting during this you said that kids in particular really love this this section they do and it because it's the
1: opening movement of the concerto it's oftentimes the sounds coming from the string instruments the solo string instruments are so unusual that the kids are kind of riveted you can watch them in an audience they just they zoom in on what the soloists are doing and the energy that they put out engages. Pretty much everyone. I remember in Fort Worth... At one of the concerts during an intermission, a, a grandmother came up to me with her granddaughter, and she said, thank you for writing something that both of us will like. <laughs> so
0: I thought that was the ultimate compliment. <laughs> that is, yeah. I know, it can be hard to keep kids' attention. But That's true, yeah. Yeah, yeah your music is always so full. Well, not always, because you have some more introverted music. But when you, when you go for energy, boy, you really deliver.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I know, occasionally people say they think I'm drinking too much caffeine. So,
0: (laughs) Do you drink caffeine? I do, actually. (laughs) Maybe too much. So that's the secret. I need to Uh, up my caffeine intake. (laughs) Got to get some composing in, so I'm going to drink that caffeine so everything's at a faster tempo. It's true. (laughs) Oh, that's great. So w- I'm so curious because you this isn't the first piece that you sort of stretched this idea of the concerto where a concerto usually features a soloist, um, but you sort of stretch this idea and here you've got a trio. Time for Three, like you said before we played the piece, is Two violins and double bass, and so I'm so curious. How much did you work with them, and then how much was there? Did they improvise at all in in the creation of this piece? That's a really good question. They
1: had wanted to improvise quite a bit, actually, in it, and they asked for a framework for them to play over. However, their one of their violinists got a job as concertmaster of the Indianapolis Symphony. And I knew when that happened, he was going to try to balance both playing in Time for Three and being a concertmaster. And I realized they wouldn't have time to put the improvisation together. So what I did was I wrote music that sounds like it's being improvised, but it's actually written out. And I gave them tiny little areas where they could do small improvisations that were very controlled, like maybe 16 or 12 measures. And it's interesting. I've known the... Original players for Time for Three, I knew because they went through Curtis. They're all classically oh, trained. Oh, I
0: see. Okay, okay. So
1: I kind of knew their personalities, and I knew kind of their their love of improv and all kinds of music. And we actually went into a room at Curtis when, when I got this commission. We set up GarageBand, and they did a bunch of improvising. They showed me these really cool sounds, basically the sounds you hear opening that movement They showed them to me. We recorded in GarageBand. They burned them on a disc. I went home started writing the piece using these sounds because they're very unorthodox Mm -hmm. and uh, I actually had to come up with a notation system for some of them but I also made separate tracks on a CD because I knew these guys I knew when I gave them the music they'd be like I can't do this and I wanted them to hear that in fact they had already done it
0: yes in fact you can because here it is yeah that's it exactly (laughs) exactly the way it unfolded too (laughs) that's so great Um, Wow, what a testament to your, um, I was talking to a friend about this, that, you know, as composers, we have to really work on our technique. But then, ideally, when an audience listens to our music, they're not thinking about the technique. And so, you know, when I when I thought about asking you that question about did they improvise, I could have sworn that they did. So what a testament to your Ability to create music that sounds improvised. It's funny, because really. I,
1: yeah, I thought to myself, how am I going to pull this off? I had doubts all the way through, even when we went uh. into the first rehearsals. I'm like, I'm not sure that I made this sound smooth enough. Because, you know, one of the things the Philadelphia Orchestra told me, they were also doing Tchaikovsky on the program. And mm. they said, well, we'll probably be spending most of our time rehearsing that, but we want a bluegrass flavored piece. So think about that. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. What a challenge.
0: <laughs> yeah. but well, you know, I mean, wow, you really you pulled it off and then some. I'm very you're relieved. Right- that's the other thing. People are
1: like, oh, yes, you went to do that. And every time I think, oh, boy, I got through that one. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I
0: pulled it off. Yeah. I pulled it off. <laughs> now, you're from, do I have this right? You're from North Carolina, right? Actually, I'm
1: from East Tennessee. Really, East Tennessee. Very close to the border, though. I mean- it's funny uh, because I did this opera, Cold Mountain, which is based in North Carolina. And yeah. when I was reading the novel, I noticed there was a map in the front of the book, actually. And when I started looking at it, I suddenly realized that the farm I lived on in East Tennessee was on that map. It's, oh, it was wow. that close to North Carolina. I would never realized how close it was to the border, but it was it very, very close. So I was at the extreme edge of East Tennessee.
0: So you grew up on a farm.
1: I did. What basically happened was the first 10 years of my life, uh, I grew up in a city in Atlanta. And then my parents decided it would be good for my brother and myself to be on a farm. So they moved to East Tennessee. Um, So they felt like I should have both city life and country life. So that's a very novel thing to, I mean, really, when you're thinking about raising kids, it's a kind of an unusual thing. But my parents were really, they were hippies. And uh, my dad was a commercial artist who worked at home, so he could move his work with him. He had a studio in the house, and that made it possible to actually pull something like that off.
0: So you grew up with art around
1: you as well. That's right. Lots of visual art and strangely, a lot of rock and roll in the house, not a lot of classical. So my parents, when I went into classical music, they were like, what happened? What did we do? (laughs)
0: They were, they were really as, if the, as if they lost you or something. You I know. know. <laughs> like what happened?
1: Where did you pick this habit up? <laughs> It was totally backwards. I was the black sheep loving classical music. So yeah. yeah.
0: You know, that makes a lot of sense though, because if you grew up with um, listening to more rock music, I mean, I wonder if that's where this this level of energy that you pull yep. into your music. Yeah, is. That's, yeah. yeah that I makes a lot of sense. I decided,
1: decided sense. after looking back, you know, you go, I was always behind in school because I was a late starter, but I've decided it actually turned out to be an advantage because I think my brain is wired slightly different from growing up around, a different type of music, much more pop and rock oriented. So I have a tendency to try to turn ideas over faster. And I oh, think about the energy. Yeah. So I, I have no doubt that it actually has really influenced me a lot.
0: And yet, you know, you think about pop songs and they're sort of these self contained shorter you know they're much shorter form than we deal with in concert music except well, so, you have to
1: remember this was the 60s so we're talking the oh that's Beatles. A good point. yeah so you're talking yeah. the sergeant pepper's album yeah. you know, early reggae bob dylan stuff peter paul and mary simon and garfunkel so a lot of those songs from that era when i look back on it now they tell stories very distinct stories and they're some of them are kind of epically big because of that they tend to be longer and they tend that's to talk true. about yeah. So I think that the fact that it was the sixties and I was very young, but because my dad worked at home, that music was playing all the time in the house. So it just was kind of running in the background. And I think composers, mm-hmm. this your brain gets programmed when you're young just from the, the your sound world of everything that swirls around you and it goes in. Ah. And for a composer that's kind of the soundtrack just like languages is, is the soundtrack of your Life. That's why Debussy sounds very French.
0: Yeah, and I imagine yeah. I sound
1: pretty American. So,
0: you well, you sa- You know, it's interesting. When I think of your music, I wouldn't necessarily think of an American sound. I think of Jennifer Higdon. You've got a very. <laughs> That's great. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's you know and I didn't even realize that until you just said I have an American sound and I thought D- do you? I don't know. I don't you know, know. I you know, know,
1: I'm actually saying that because so many reporters have said it to me that I've gotten to the point where I'm just repeating what the reporter. I mean, I'm constantly asked about that and I think the first 30 or 40 times I said, "Do I have an American sound?" and sound. they're like, well, "Yeah, you have an American sound."
0: <laughs> well, I mean, do you think that? Because I'm not sure. You know, when I think of an American sound, it, I think of like Copeland, although that kind of, the Copeland-esque, you know, kind of sneaks into that piece we just heard.
1: And, you know, I I have to admit, I never sit around thinking about what my sound is. I just, literally, my thought process is constantly, how can I make what I'm working on at the moment better and what ends up happening is I end up doing so many interviews and and it's mentioned so much in the press that I think after a while my brain goes, oh yeah, it must be an American sound. But I never really think about it, to be quite honest.
0: I want to move forward, but I want to, I want to just pause for a minute around the music and ask you a question that I wanted to ask because you're talking about making your music better every time you work on it. And you recently, you and I are connected on Facebook, and you recently posted something about the deceased pianist and teacher Leon Fleischer, mm. um, who, you know, that was a great loss. Um, and he, you posted something where he said, the performer is not the star, the music is the star. This idea of serving the music, what do you think it means – but this idea of serving our passion, what, do you, what does that mean to you? Or how do you think you can you do that?
1: Yeah, it's, it's actually, it depends on who's asking the question and, and who's answering. Because if you ask a, a concert pianist, some of them, like Leon Fleischer, would say they're serving the music, the, what the composer did. Mm-hmm. Um, there are oh, some yeah. performers who say they're serving their instrument, and there are some performers who say they're serving the audience. I mean, there literally will be different answers and to me it's like it's all actually connected. It's not really separated out. The the one thing that was noticeable about Fleischer saying that was the fact that we often make big stars out of soloists, but mm-hmm. Truly, the bigger task is writing the music because you're making something out of nothing. They're mm-hmm. taking a script. You've written all these notes out. You've laid out the timing, the spacing, the how fast, how slow, what notes they'll play, how loud they'll play them. You're actually giving them the script. It's much harder to create something out of thin air that becomes something basically whole. You've got an entire orchestra and you have some soloists. It's a different thing when you're just playing pieces as a soloist you've already got the script so a big chunk of the work has already been done so leon Fleischer saying that was interesting because it was a it was a, a recognition of the importance of the people who create the thing that we all experience because we mm-hmm. work in solitary confinement in a room composing is it is mysterious, and I still find it mysterious, and I'm doing that every day. <laughs> There's a magic there that we cannot explain. You can see a pianist practicing scales and doing etudes and rehearsing the Rachmaninoff, you know, slowly in a practice room. So, but what we do is so mysterious, but that's kind of why you have a podcast, right? You're kind of trying to basically, get to the bottom of it. Yeah. <laughs> and get people kind of a view of what it's like to create notes on a page, because what you and I do is exactly what Mozart did. It's exactly what Beethoven and Bach did, what Brahms. And so it hasn't actually changed. We still write it one note at a time, but to pull notes out of the air and put them on a page so that someone else can play them is kind of a miraculous thing. It's a huge act of faith, but it's also a lot of daydreaming, but you have to have the skill and the knowledge to handle the instruments and the style you're writing in, and it's mm-hmm. something that a lot of people are not as aware of, and I can understand why. I mean, it totally right. makes sense. But it, for Leon Fly, to have made that statement. I was, I was actually moved by it.
0: Mm. That, yeah, that is really fascinating. I hadn't thought about that. I love what you said about different ways of serving. Yeah, and I think. know, when you say like, um, you know, people don't think about these things, I think a lot of that is, I mean, we won't get too much into this because it's a huge, huge conversation, but You know, I think that's where us as a culture, we sort of fail um, in education because there is this gap between um, the general public and what we do. And, um, you know, and I think- the general
1: public could actually write music. They don't even realize. I mean, a lot of people-
0: I agree. Yes, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. They're
1: they're like, well, I don't have any theory. I'm like, you don't have to have theory. Yeah. Yeah. It's
0: exactly right.
1: Yeah. If you
0: want to know how to write like Mozart and Bach and Beethoven, you need theory. But you can um, write and like it's, you. You don't need that. Yes. Theory. yeah. You know, I I got a chance to teach at Duke to um, music theory to some non majors, and I taught it in a way where I told, you know, I had these future doctors and and paleontologists and et cetera, et cetera, sitting in the classroom, and I would tell them by the end of this course you're going to write your own piece, and they all got, you know, they would all have this look of fear, and I'd say, don't worry, I'm going to give you the tools that you need so that it's going to be very doable. And by the end of the class, they were all amazed that they'd written these pieces. That's a
1: cool thing though, isn't it? It's empowering.
0: I always think, you know, why do we put crayons in kids' hands and not teach them how to create music? That's right. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely.
1: I know. And, you know, music is such a visceral thing. Kids react to it on a visceral level. If you go in and do any kind of program in a school and they're young kids, there's always going to be a couple of kids who are dancing.
0: I'm curious, has anyone ever gotten up and danced at one of your concerts that you know about? Yeah, you know,
1: when I actually, I remember doing a bunch of school programs with the Prism Saxophone Quartet. And it's so funny, I remember and every single one of the presentations we did, some kid got up and started dancing. And I have seen them dance during that Concerto 4-3. I have seen them like some of the outdoor venues that I've been at where this has been done. I've seen kids get up and dance. So I can tell that their instinct is to respond physically to what they're hearing, which actually is a good thing because if you can get kids to respond to that, that means they're going to be more interested in the music to begin with later on in life.
0: Yeah. And that's
1: kind of, that's an audience
0: that's important. Yeah. Yeah. And that, again, it says so much about what you write because I think... You just create, you create that energy that people can tap into. And it sounds like especially kids. I can't wait to bring my daughter to one of your performances. (laughs) When everything (laughs) we know, when we get back to- some sense of normalcy. Yeah, but, amen. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know. We'll get there. We'll get there. So, I want to move forward and listen to um, this is a choral work from your opera that you mentioned earlier, um, "Cold Mountain," based on the novel of the same name by Charles Fraser. And you worked with librettist Jean Shear. And the segment we're going to play from this opera is a choral piece that um, you know my. Well, I, yeah, I saw you at the concert, but my husband and I went to the performance at the North Carolina Symphony. Uh, excuse me, at the North Carolina Opera, and this was this this segment they were going to play it was one of the most memorable parts of the opera. So let's go ahead and listen to that, and then we'll talk a bit about this. This is our beautiful country, sung by Chanticleer from uh, Jennifer Higdon's Cold Mountain. Mm-hmm. That was Our Beautiful Country from Jennifer Higdon's opera, Cold Mountain, and you are listening to The Composer's Studio. Jennifer, that is such a gorgeous, meditative piece. And I'm curious, you you said you read the book, I'm sure, before you, when you were creating the opera, but did, were you able to work with the author Charles Frazier? Uh, this is
1: interesting. I actually read through the book four times consecutively. Wow, wow. Because you really have to get a sense of the characters. And that's a big novel. A lot happens yeah. in it. And I wanted to make sure I had a feel for the pacing. And Charles Frazier was so gracious. Uh, he said, listen, I don't know anything about opera. So just do whatever you need to do. I trust you completely. And I, wow. I, I remember telling him I would take care of his main characters, Ada, Ruby, and Inman. I said, I promise, her I I will try to do them complete and total justice. And because it's that's a big novel. I mean, it really it could be the Ring Cycle in reality. If you were right, oh, if
0: that's you, a good point. Yeah, the
1: whole thing it would take several nights for it to unfold. And we wanted to try to capture the essence of Inman's journey and Ada's journey, the the main couple in it, as they basically as the story unfolds. But you can't put everything that's in a novel in an opera, so. It's a, it was a big thing. in my first opera meant my learning curve was really steep, but it was nice to be able to write choral sections of the opera. And this was actually one of the ones I thought, oh, I think this may actually work. I think it might work in reality. So, and it turns out yeah. it's usually the moment that most people remember from the opera.
0: It, it is very memorable. And and I remember it, it comes up several times. Yeah
1: yeah um and does. so it's
0: sort of yeah, it feels like this kind of grounding, which I think makes can make an opera. It's almost like Wagner, you mentioned the ring and for for I'm sure everyone knows Wagner's uh, ring cycle, but um for anyone listening, if you don't, it's they're these massive um, amazing. Uh, operas, but um, with his, you know, his idea of the leitmotif, which is a theme that sort of weaves throughout his operas, you, you almost used, did you think of this choral work in that, in those terms as sort of. Yeah. You know, you have,
1: to, if, you, if you know you've got a big piece that's two and a half hours, you're going to have to have some of the music come back because it helps the audience. And the first time I had this music in the opera, it was in a completely different setting with different words. It was a hospital scene near the beginning where some people were all in beds and they, and basically it's a bunch of soldiers that are gathered around and someone has died and they've taken yes. off the person who's died. So when this version comes back towards the end of the opera, it's after there's been quite a bit of death because this is the Civil War and mm-hmm. we needed a moment. I wanted to recognize the soldiers. I wanted to recognize the soldiers mm-hmm. that had given their lives. And so we we call it the soldiers chorus. They actually or on the stage singing, but it gives it gives the audience a moment to kind of pause and think and reflect and to kind of slow their their heart rate, believe it or not, because there's a lot of action in the opera and there's a lot of things that happen mm-hmm. very quickly. So having something like this is like it's I consider it a moment of breathing, but you do, as a composer, constructing something over a huge edifice, two and a half hours is a lot of music. Mm-hmm. You think about all right. I got to bring certain sounds back. It'll help the audience stay oriented emotionally in the story.
0: And how interesting too when you said you know there's a lot of movement, and so this was sort of your chance to let them take take a breath. Yeah. Um, that yeah. There's so much to think about when creating an opera, and you have to think about who's on stage and when. When did the soloist last sing, and who are they on stage with, and if you have, uh, don't you have to think about like if there's. Yeah. Um, outfit changes. Well,
1: that's it. <laughs> yes, that's the kind of thing that people don't think about. In fact, yeah. I remember we had flashbacks in in my opera where things would turn back three or four years, and so what would happen was people would look pretty ragged because they were already at the end of the Civil War, and suddenly they're flashing back to before. I remember calling the director and saying, "How many minutes do you need for this character to get off the stage, make a costume change, and reappear on the other side?" And he literally timed it with a a stopwatch. I think he was looking at the action in his head. And he said, look, I only need 90 seconds. And I'm like, really? You only need 90 seconds? How is that even possible? You know, it's dark backstage. They're taking off one costume, putting on another. And his first response was, well, Velcro really helps a lot. But you literally, as a composer, you're looking in your head at what you think will unfold on the stage. And and you have to actually figure out how much time you allow for people to move around to get to a certain prop or to leave the stage and come back on later. So it's a constant awareness of how things will unfold in front of the audience, but also the practicality of what everyone in the pit who's playing an instrument has to do and everyone on the stage who's singing and moving about what they have to do. It's a massive coordination effort.
0: Yeah, probably very different from thinking about writing music for for instrumentalists. Actually, I was surprised at
1: how different it was because the thing is you're also telling a story and you're responsible for that story and those characters, especially since this was taken from a pretty famous novel that also had a movie attached to it. Right. So there's a responsibility to keep that story in your head. And weirdly, for the two and a half years that I wrote on the opera, and I was working on it every day, those characters stayed in my head. They did not ever leave. They were there the entire time. It wasn't until I finished the opera that I felt the characters going out. And I remember the way the opera ends, it's one person, It is on that stage, and when she leaves, I remember it was as if someone closed the door and it just stopped. It was really, it was an emotional thing for me, but it was totally different than writing instrumental music.
0: You know, I hear actors talk about that as the sort of embodying their characters. I hadn't thought about that in terms of creating an opera that.
1: And you have to live through, this is going to sound weird. you have to live through the emotions. You have to live through the scenes. So that means if there yeah. are horrible things happening in a scene where people are getting shot, like we have in that opera, you're living through that. It's a, it's, yeah. it's pretty difficult physically and emotionally and, because it takes so long to write music it means that you may be in a scene for as long as a month writing on it so it's it's intense but you also want to do justice to the story so you have to be willing to live within that emotion and that action
0: yeah that's interesting you know i haven't yet had a had a production of an opera but i wrote i've written a couple of operas and i remember my librettist saying you know for this particular um character we need for you to get dark we need for you to get really dark and it was I remember that now that you're talking about this, it was really hard for me. And I remember sitting down and writing this aria and yeah, you do, you have to kind of put yourself in a place that you don't always want to go. And
1: yeah. And you just kind of stay in that. I can remember in some of the scenes where where people died in Cold Mountain, where uh, I was actually kind of nauseous for the days where I was working on I remember having a physical reaction and and thinking, I've got to get through this. I just have to get to the next scene. But it, I think it's a better way to do justice to what you're trying to put on the page.
0: I am curious about the text. I, I looked, I scoured the internet. I looked on your website. I should have maybe reached out to you. But um, the the text of this this choral piece was this from the book or did Jean Shear write the text? Jean wrote the text. We realized
1: one of the things we said before we had actually kind of broken the novel down into a manageable outline. I told Jean that I wanted to have quite a few moments where the chorus was singing, because I think the music's always more interesting whether you're writing a concerto or a piece, if you have contrast in it so that if we have a lot of arias and duets, I wanted big choral pieces in there. So we kind of looked at the story that we were outlining and figured out where the choruses could fit in, how they could get on the stage and off the stage logically, make sense in the story. But the text for that particular choral thing is, is purely Gene Shear's writing. It's funny, Gene wrote it and then I southernized it because I grew up in the South to yeah. figure out how to make sure that it works with the dialect. And you can't really hear it in the chorus, but in other parts, it's very, it's a very southern dialogue. So it was a fascinating thing to do. But Gene was also really great because he wrote the libretto and he said, do whatever you need to, because in the end, the music is the only thing that really matters. You don't have to set word for word. So if you need to cut out sections of stuff Mm. or rewrite it or readjust it, do so. And I did. In fact, I think I removed a third of his libretto I mean, you can, when you look at the libretto, there's so many things marked out and I would think about what words were easier to sing, what's, what's better for them. And, you know, this premiered in a high altitude in Santa Fe. So I actually had to, I had to think about what the singers were going to be going through in some of the scenes where there might be a lot of physicality and suddenly they've got to sing a long line, maybe up high. I had to really think about what I was going to put them through because a lot of times they would be panting because the air is a little thinner. In Santa Fe. Mm. So it, there were some extra challenges in there, especially for a first time opera composer. And I'm again, another moment where I was extremely relieved that I made it through intact and that the, the end product came out okay.
0: <laughs> oh, I would say it was much better than okay. It's an amazing opera. Oh, thank you. Um, let's move on to Pale Yellow. This is from Jennifer Higdon's Piano Trio. This was commissioned by the Bravo Vale Music Festival. This is a performance by Anna Akiko Myers on violin, Alyssa Weilerstein on cello, and Adam Nyman on piano. This work is available for purchase on the Naxos CD Jennifer Higdon Piano Trio Voices Impressions. This is pale yellow. was a movement from Pale Yellow, Jennifer Higdon's piano trio. Jennifer, you write about this piece that music can reflect colors. And I'm so curious, um, and you said you pictured colors as if you were spreading them on a canvas. And this phenomenon of called synesthesia, in which information that's meant to, you know, information comes in and it might stim- stimulate a certain sense. For synesthetes, it might stimulate more than one sense. So that, for instance, someone who would see colors as they simultaneously hear sounds. Do you consider yourself a synesthete? I
1: actually don't. I get asked that a lot because of I've got quite a few movements and pieces that have color titles. I think this probably comes from growing up in a household with a father who was in visual art. So I was constantly aware of how art is put together, but it just wasn't the musical art. And ironically, and maybe this is what provoked me thinking about this. My dad was colorblind. He was red and green colorblind.
0: And oh, interesting. And he was an artist. He was an artist.
1: So he he actually was a commercial artist, but he also did paintings on the side and experimental films. So sometimes though, when he was doing, he'd be doing something for the commercial art side and he would literally have to come in With a, basically had a white illustration board that had like 12 different greens on it. And he would ask me which one of these colors is the closest to the color of grass, that green, the green of grass. Wow. Because he couldn't see that, so... It's kind of an interesting thing. So I'm sure part of that got me thinking about what is it to experience color in the world. We just kind of assume everyone sees it the same way. But having been around my dad and not, him not being able to see reds and greens, which those are really primary colors, yeah. made me very aware that colors have characteristics. And I thought, is it possible to actually capture that in the music? I, I'm not sure. Mm. so it was a it's an, it kind of an interesting i'm asking myself that as i'm writing and so that's part of the fascinating exploration inside my own brain trying to figure that out music wise
0: and so you were working that out in this piece or i guess it sounds like you've done that with several
1: pieces yeah i have and i because there are different colors the other movement of in this piano trio is fiery red and then i did an, a second piano trio that had wondrous white and brilliant blue. Mm. So I actually am kind of making my way through the colors. But I've noticed recently that color titles end up in quite a few of my pieces. So I guess it's my visual arts childhood, basically.
0: That's so fascinating. Yeah. And, um, yeah. And who would guess that your dad, he was clearly successful because he made a living at it, was an artist and... Was also colorblind. That is really, I've, I had never heard of that. Yeah, it's but kind of clearly it's he figured it out. Yeah, it's, yeah. I mean,
1: I guess if you're working in commercial art, you don't necessarily have to see the colors. Even if you're doing like fine art where you're doing big canvases, we assume you would have to see the colors, but not necessarily. So, I mean, it's an interesting thing to think about. It's something that really got me thinking about, oh, what is art? And what does that mean to different people? And we don't all have the same reference point. So it's, uh, how do you speak?
0: I wonder if that, yeah, I wonder if that links into your, you know, when you said we don't need to know necessarily no theory to write write music. Yeah, I guess you
1: don't. I think it actually does because my dad did not train as an artist. When he went to college, he was training as an engineer and he always made the comment that he was pretty sure somebody one day was going to figure out that he didn't know what he was doing, even though he was doing all this commercial art for big advertising. I remember him doing things for Coca-Cola for Crystal's burgers. I remember him doing a huge campaign for Crystal. And I remember him doing Aretha Franklin wow. for Coca-Cola. and So, wow. but he never trained in it, but th- this was the thing that it really affected me. He was a commercial artist who freelanced who worked at home. So that gave me courage to do that as a composer.
0: I was just thinking that you had a great example there and that sort of gave, it sounds like it gave you permission to kind of, cuz you jumped into this much later on than most composers do. Right. And you're right. Uh, it was exactly yeah. that
1: because I remember growing up my dad was always saying, "Look, if you can figure out how to like pay the bills, you can make the art. You can just you just have to go for it." So it was a yeah. that was a fundamental lesson for me from a really really young age. And so well, no. that really has stayed with me. But you're right. It that's an empowerment for a young child to hear that while seeing someone make art.
0: You know it's an interesting thing to think about as I think even prior to the pandemic we've you know especially we we homeschool our daughter and we've been thinking a lot about you know a lot of people nowadays are sort of questioning this idea of do we you know do you always need a college degree and um and you know I, i'm I'm an avid believer in lifelong learning, um so I think always yes, a college degree is a good idea but but it's interesting to think about the other side of things and think, well, there are things you can do. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. and
1: I think college isn't, doesn't necessarily fit everyone. And I think it's always worth, right. I mean, you have to kind of let the individual kind of feel their way to what they need in a certain sense. We automatically go off to school and college does teach you different ways to problem solve and how to get along with people because you're on a campus and we will be on a campus again at some point soon. And
0: yes, yes, we will. <laughs> yeah, but it is really,
1: it's, you can study things and, Actually, studies have shown that people often don't do in life what they studied in college, what their major was.
0: I've heard that. yeah. Yeah.
1: So, But you have what you do is you make connections. I think you're making mental connections. You're learning how to problem solve. You're learning how to jump through the hoops of life. And it may be that what you're learning if you're like studying medicine or something like that. These are things you'll be using every day in your career. But you do, I think not, college isn't for everyone. And I think you have to respect that. And I think it's completely fine if someone doesn't go to college, if they feel that there's something there for them that is different and there's a different path for it. Because you think about it, Beethoven and Mozart didn't go to college either.
0: Right, right, right. (laughs) And they did okay, right? They did all right. (laughs) They're still hanging in there. That's (laughs) right. Jennifer, I want to um, lead us towards the final piece we're going to present in this episode, This is one of my all-time favorite works of all time called Blue Cathedral for Orchestra. Um, This was also commissioned by the Curtis Institute of Music. And I I just want to talk about it a bit because we're going to close the show out with this piece. But this piece, Blue Cathedral, was uh, sort of a response to the loss of your brother, Andrew. And um, you asked yourself in, I was reading through your uh, program notes that you sent, and you you were you said you were thinking about what makes a life, and I'm about to ask you a huge question, yeah. but I'm going to ask you. That's okay, <laughs> have, have you have you come to any conclusions around that question? Yeah, you know that's
1: actually it's a really there have been different stages of discovery on that front. And if you'll notice the word blue in this title, another color. My mm-hmm. my brother's middle name was Blue. My dad mm-hmm. realized at some point he was a younger brother that he wanted. He wanted one of his kids to have a name they could use if they became an artist. They could revert from Andy to Blue or something like that. Wow! Um, one of the things when I started Blue Cathedral, it was probably about ten months after I, my brother had died from uh, melanoma, metastatic melanoma. So he had skin mm-hmm. cancer, and I think during a, through part of the writing because that's so close to the grieving process, I was still really. Buried under with it, but i I had to decide whether living life was going to be about death or about living. I had to literally come to terms whether I was going to be obsessing about death and thinking about it, or whether I was going to step forward and endeavor to live more fully and you can actually hear me get to the answer in the piece. Mm-hmm. It actually happens at the brass fanfare it's uh it, the music kind of takes off and it has kind of a positive uplift and I, it, that literally is the point where i said this is got to be about living this is what my brother would have wanted so i think you spend your lifetime answering that question and there are lots of complex layers to it and the, to me people are the most important thing and that's one of the things about blue cathedral because it was written for Curtis's it's 75th anniversary. I thought about all those students and how important those friendships are, what they, these people that they play an orchestra with, they play chamber music, they're going to classes, they're suffering through ear training together. And so <laughs> I realized that these people don't realize how important these individuals will be. They influence mm-hmm. them because you really, you do a lot of your learning in school from your colleagues mm-hmm. just as much as you do from teachers, if not more. And I thought that's an important aspect of all of our lives. It's the people Mm. we cross paths with. Because to me, the most important aspect of life are the people in it. Mm. And that's, for me, that's everything the Blue Cathedral is. And Andy's leaving this earth made me realize that by the number of people who were touched by his life. And I heard from a lot of people and. So that kind of all fed into this piece. It was so cathartic for me to write. And it's been done so many times now that I feel like Blue Cathedral belongs to the world. It's not really my piece anymore. It really does belong to the world.
0: Hmm. Well, I can't think of a better way to... um, I don't want to end this episode because it is so... Such a joy to talk to you. And I want to just say thank you so much for coming on to the Composer Studio. That's a pleasure. Um, Really,
1: it's, I mean, you know, these things are fun when you get to do them. It's fun to like talk with colleagues about what we all go through when we're creating something.
0: Yeah. And we're in such an unusual time. So it's nice to, you know, we'll release this podcast. It's just nice to create a connection that, uh, that we can't have right now, but um, connect people to your music, because I think everyone needs to experience the music of Jennifer Higdon. Well, thank so you, Randy, you. are. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> this is Blue Cathedral by Jennifer Higdon, commissioned by the Curtis Institute of Music, performed by the Atlanta Symphony with Robert Spano Conducting. This piece is available for purchase on the Telarc label CD entitled Rainbow Body. I'm Amy Scaria and you have been listening to the Composer Studio with guest Jennifer Higdon. You have been listening to the Composer Studio, co-created and co-hosted by Anna Linville, Tarek Iridella, and me, Amy Scaria. With special thanks to Bob Bertman and WHUP FM in Hillsboro. Join us next week on the Composer Studio as we continue to feature the lives and music of living composers. Until next week, thank you for listening.